Provoke podcast is brought to you by Provoke Media and produced by the international broadcast specialists, Marketeers. Support for this podcast comes from Notified, the integrated, intelligent and easy-to-use PR software. Get a free demo today at Notified.com. Welcome. This is Combining Social and Media Strategy, a series that explores the new media ecosystem, and we're doing this in partnership with NewsWhip. So I'm Arthi Shaw. I'm executive editor at Provoke Media, and I'm the host for this series. Today is our first episode in which we're exploring the strategies um, against misinformation, looking specifically at the environment around COVID-19 and vaccine confidence. So on today's show, we have Abdil Halim, who's crisis communications officer for the Africa region at the World Health Organization. And he is based, tell me if I'm wrong, are you based in the Republic of Congo? Supposed to be, um, based in Cairo. (laughs) Oh, you're based in Cairo. Okay, so you're actually in Egypt. Okay, so my, my LinkedIn researching was 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 off there. Um, no, but it's correct. It's, I, I'm I'm supposed to be based in Congo. Yeah. Ah. Okay. Okay. Um, I'm working from home. Oh yes. Yeah. I, as we are, uh, all are. Um, and then also on the show today we have um, the news Newswhip CEO Paul Quigley, who and I think I'm right here is coming to us from Dublin, Ireland. Yep. Lockdown in Dublin, not going anywhere. Yes, and and of course, and and I'm here in the San Francisco Bay Area. Well, welcome to the show, Halim and Paul. Thanks Thank so much. Yeah, so you know, I want to start by um, kind of laying the regional groundwork for our listeners. And Halim, you know, you know, I, I know the African countries are gearing up for the rollout of the COVID nineteen vaccine, and from my understanding, this is going to be the largest ever immunization campaign that the continent has ever embarked on. Um, and so I'm curious to hear kind of what role communications is playing in this readiness effort. Yeah, absolutely. I, as you said, it is indeed the biggest vaccination drive in not just in the history of the continent, it's in the history of the world. Um, we are trying as much as possible to make sure that to organize ourselves. Um, there's a lot of partners um, working on this. Uh, lots of governments uh, trying to control and, and not control, but like steer the conversation around vaccines. Um, and of course, there's a lot of misinformation uh, taking place and a lot of misinterpretation. Clearly, lots of information gaps due to the number of um, uncertainty, the, the, the extent, of, uh, extent of the uncertainty and, um, you know, things that we, we don't just don't, simply don't know. Um, we're using a vaccine under the emergency use listing. It's uh, uh, the biggest, uh, I, I mean, it's, we have tried to roll out Ebola, the Ebola vaccine under compassionate use listing, but it was uh, in specific uh, areas, um, in Western Africa specifically. But at the moment, uh, we are using something that's uh, on a global level. Um, it's very challenging to roll out uh, new vaccines in general. Mm-hmm. This time, um, it's happening under emergency use listing. It's also happening under um, under a very uh, under a very unusual circumstances, we a global pandemic, nowhere to hide. There's a lot of disparity between uh, rich countries and, and poorer countries, self-financing, and countries that are um, part of the COVAX facility, which is the initiative that WHO and uh, Gavi, the Vaccine Alliance, have uh, developed uh, to ensure equitable access of vaccines to poorer countries. So the, the landscape is very charged, um, lots of uncertainties, lots of uh, 
things, the communications role is key in generating demand, but also in, in a context like ours, where we are facing um, delays in, in, uh, in the vaccine reaching the general population, and we're just purely prioritizing the 3% who will be folk who are the essential uh, frontline workers and healthcare workers, and then the general, and then the high risk uh, populations. That has created, um, uh, there's a lot of negative discourse around vaccines for the obvious reasons. Um, and uh, for sure, because people just don't know when are they getting vaccines, is it good or bad, all of these things. But in our, in our efforts, we're trying to create a better or a more positive um, environment around uh, and a more positive discourse around uh, immunization and vaccines. And, and we have been immunizing children for for, for a very long time, and it's a it's a it's a very um, it's it's a very routine thing that's happening in the region. Um, it's just happening, and and immunizing um, adult populations is a bit more complex. Um, and vaccines in general is one of the it has to do a lot with the, with the fundamental values and politics of one person. So um, demand generation is something that's key. But as I said, creating a more positive discourse. Yeah, no, I think that's a really interesting point because you know, while you you want to build this demand, like you said, I mean, for many populations, the accessibility for the vaccines, we're looking at possibly months down the road. So then you end up with this frustration where if you've built up the demand and then people are told, well, no, you actually can't get one, a vaccine yet. And, and I mean, even, and again, I know it's it's not an apples to apples comparison, but I know even in Western countries, you know, we've, we've seen this. Um, where you know this, the big news in November was you know we have these vaccines and now it's February and you know much of the pop most of the population has no idea when they'll they'll actually be able to get a vaccine. Um, I, I wanted to talk specifically also about um, how you all are, are dealing with some of this misinformation and I saw that WHO's office in Nigeria actually trained more than a hundred national journalists, kind of focusing on the principles of public health and sort of understanding the technical terms. So. I'm curious because I know so many people who are susceptible to misinformation aren't necessarily getting this through the news. It's coming through platforms like, you know, WhatsApp. So I'm curious to hear sort of how those efforts, you know, it all sort of had a long tail effect um, to curbing some misinformation on, on social platforms. And, and Paul, I know you watch this closely as well. So feel, feel free to chime in. Um, oh, well, I, I mean, my, our, our perspective on this, so we're, we, we don't get data from, WhatsApp, that's end-to-end -end encrypted, first of all, but what people who are tackling misinformation in Middle East and Africa who we're working with often do is look at what's breaking out on Facebook pay, public Facebook pages and what stories are breaking there. And that can be an indicator often of what's happening on the encrypted platforms as well. So public platforms can be a good way of seeing what the narratives are that are taking off. And then that could be an indicator of which of those narratives are the ones that uh, we may need to address through a spokesperson, through some public education, through speaking to the media. So I think it's, you know, you can kind of infer and, and, and use best estimates from the kind of public data that we gather. Um, we've seen, uh, yeah, that, that being used quite a bit by, by the people on the front lines who are supporting. Um, and we, we've seen as well this quite challenging phenomenon of um, news stories uh, you know, anti-vaccination news stories and news stories that are skeptical or that would create skepticism about vaccines going viral and getting a fair bit of engagement in in the West. And maybe that's adding to 
fear and skepticism elsewhere. And I think Halim's probably, you've observed that kind of phenomenon already from speaking to you before. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, the, what, what we're dealing with at the moment is, is definitely uh, what WHO had described as an infodemic, which is the overabundance of um, information uh, around the public health crisis. That's with a lot of misinformation um, and uh, one of the things that we're trying to do with uh, WHO is definitely try and address um, these, uh, these concerns and these gaps and misinformation. Um, there is clearly um, a, a, a lot of, um, it's very hard to quantify an infodemic. It's, it's extremely difficult to kind of um, understand. I mean, the volume of the conversation, that's something that's a, that's a metric that we can measure, like a volume of the conversations or the mentions around COVID-19 is something that we can mention on social media. But if we look at um, exactly what is the percentage of the misinformation that is coming out of it, the technology that we have at the moment is very, is still far away. I mean, and we can get it anecdotally, we can get it through, um, through um, you know, qualitatively, uh, but, but definitely not quantitatively. And I think um, the, 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 the risks of having people, I mean, it is the reality that we're dealing with. People will have concerns and they are legitimate concerns. They, it's not, not everything that is being said um, is said with the intent to harm. Um, there's, of course, there are different people um, who might have different agendas, but um, some of them are just like, people don't understand the difference between, you know, DNA and mRNA. They sound the same. So maybe, you know, this plays with my DNA. So <laughs> this is mm -hmm. uh, just a, a small example, but, uh, but uh, mainly address these concerns and, and making sure that in terms of uh, people's hesitancy to, to take a certain decisions around vaccination uh, or not is something that we're trying to build up through, um, especially for the populations in our region. That's an excellent point that, you know, a lot of this, this information is not necessarily with the intent to harm. I mean, there is a, there's mm -hmm. genuine confusion. I mean, these mRNA vaccines have never been, been used before. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, sort of meeting people where they're at. I, you know, one of the things I, I, I saw that the Nigerian newspapers were kind of just producing a list of this is all the fake information. And here's, here's, you know, we're going to debunk all of the, all of this. It seems like that method of sort of confronting misinformation head on and directly, you know, debunking it, it seems like that might be most effective. I don't I mean, know I, about that entirely. Yeah, yeah. Other perspectives there. <laughs> yes. No, well, yeah, no, yeah, actually, I, I want to hear that because one of the things, Paul, you and I spoke about was, you know, a, you know, do we giving this oxygen and if there is a kernel of truth right inside of this misinformation, people will grasp onto that and they'll run with it. But at the same time, it just seems like dancing around it, it can also cause more confusion. Um, than, than addressing it head on. So I'm just curious to hear, you know, how do, do you have any, do you know how this went in with some of these Nigerian newspapers who published these lists and what are some alternatives? I don't Halim answer and I, I don't know if you, you, if you, you <laughs> can take that. And I've, I've got maybe some data more from the US side I could just briefly share, which might be interesting because it kind of speaks to this, this, this problem as well. But yeah. I, I think from our, I mean, um, debunking is definitely a very important tool and uh, we're, we're champions of debunking and it's something that we're trying to even develop into 
uh, a brand. Uh, as we were trying to work on creating a new brand um, to to kind of address uh, these misinformations and and debunk them. However, there there is a um, a bit of a science. I mean, it's still there. Are research is still early, and we still there's a lot that we don't know. Um, and things and the landscape keeps on changing. But definitely on debunking. Um, there is definitely the concern of amplifying and giving oxygen to the right. to the information. Um, it could backfire if the debunks are not of high quality. Um, it uh, and and when you debunk, it also depends on the format and the messenger. And there are so many different variables. Um, so one one Ministry of Health, for example, put out certain messages debunking things, but there were. Um, but there were a number of concerns with the, and a lot of backlash and a lot of negative comments and in, 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 in with those posts. Uh, definitely, it's, it's quite important to kind of create a better um, environment uh, for people and, and make sure that there is the information is ready at on hand uh, and accessible and people have equal levels of information. People, the lang- the, the, for example, make sure that the, the information is translated to the local language. Uh, to make sure that the journalists in across the region, it's a very big region, uh, Sub-Saharan Africa, and the WHO region uh, uh, for Africa covers 47 countries. Three main uh, official UN languages, uh, uh, English, French, and Portuguese, and plus the, and the, the large number of uh, local languages. So, so there's a lot to, to work on there. Um, definitely debunk is one of the, debunking is one of the things, mm-hmm. but definitely um, there needs to be uh, much more uh, done on that front. Okay. And to kind of extend the challenge a little bit there, or to kind of bring it back to our side of, of, of you know, your side of the world, even RT, like looking at the, we've been monitoring engagement with the vaccination program from the start of the year, and it's very high. Public engagement is super high in the English language world or in news content and media output. There's about 25,000 stories a day getting about three to four million engagements per day, huge public interest. And it hasn't, doesn't spike like most things do. It's just there and it's, and it's staying there. But the most engaged with story uh, so far is a healthy doctor died two weeks after getting a COVID-19 vaccine. CDC is investigating why. Now that's a very factually reported story by the Chicago Tribune, as opposed to, you know, being misinformation. And, you know, it's, it's a balanced report, but the headline would confirm the prior expectations of COVID hesitant and, or sorry, vaccine hesitant, um, hesitant, or even people who are being disingenuous, you know, um, would be sharing that headline and it's a scary headline. But unfortunately you can't debunk it or maybe eventually the CDC will issue, and there was no, nothing to suggest it was related to the vaccine in any way and maybe a finding will be issued but it won't get when the finding is issued it won't get five million engagements like that scary headline did but it does present a dilemma because it's a news story from 150 year old august publication it's reporting facts but then they get interpreted in a particular way and you know that means you kind of got to meet people where they are and say have a conversation about it somehow you know that's that's a good question and you know that, that that New York Times story. I mean, I mean, I'm not surprised that that's been the most circulated. As I mean, I've seen it many times here as well. So, how do you put these numbers into context? I mean, you know, you have, I think, as of today, I think over 160 million people have been vaccinated, right? Um, but it, you know, this one story seems to mm-hmm. hit people and stick with people in a way that these big numbers don't necessarily. So, how do you put some of these 
numbers during a pandemic in into context. I mean, even even the, the the death rate, right? I mean, you know, people in the U.S. anyway were at what I think were half a million people people have died, but people can flip that and they'll say, well, you know, a one percent, you know, fatality rate, you know, what about the 99% survival rate, you know, think putting big numbers into context is really, really challenging. And it's hard for us to wrap our brains around that. Whereas like one really scary story about a healthy doctor dying, you know, shortly after taking the vaccine, people are able to comprehend. So I'm just curious how you approach that challenge. I think from, from our end, I think that's, um, why we that's exactly why we work on training journalists and we're focused on that and we are um in on the in the in in the region we're focusing on on training local journalists but also globally we'll, we're collaborating with unesco um on that through different modules um online that are you know at people's space etc and and the the idea here is again like the interpretation of the data especially with covid-19 it's a it's a full blown crisis uh, and um, you have people who haven't who are not necessarily health correspondents covering that uh, that crisis so there is um, a lot of information gaps about the terminology how to interpret the, to interpret data how to um, which experts to quote and based on what specialty and all of these certain, many basic things that are that are not there so that's that's why we're we're focusing around that. Um, but that said, I mean, going on that example that you mentioned, um, and this is part of our risk communications. Um, I mean, firstly, uh, there is something like in our crisis communications um, in countries and on regional level, global level, there is something that we plan for, which is and, and not just with COVID nineteen, with any immunization mass immunization campaign which is um, addressing uh, adverse uh, events following immunization. And that's something that, that is possible. And for example, we had a case in, in India uh, for polio where we had um, vaccinate, uh, frontline vaccinators who just uh, used the, 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 the sanitizer um, to the child instead of, the, um, in, instead of the, the polio vaccine. And that's, I mean, these things happen. Uh, there is a margin of human error. Uh, there's a margin for, for the people who implement the vaccine, uh, administer the vaccine, and for the people who store it, for the people who manufacture it. And, and there's definitely um, a risk in there. And we're talking about uh, millions and millions of people. So um, it's just the only thing here is that we need to be transparent. Uh, we need to make sure that we address people's concerns head on in the community. And again, these are things that we have on the continent. I think this is a, something that with the routine immunization uh, programs, I think this is something that is quite important in, uh, for communicators uh, around vaccines in the, in, in the West and, and the global North. Um, these things happen uh, and it's, it's the reality. Uh, so we need to make sure that when we communicate something, there is no silver bullet. This is, uh, and, and there is no one size fit all at the end of the day. So we're, we're trying to, to work with a mix of things. Um, definitely our biggest challenge is uncertainty and making sure that we communicate as clearly and as transparently as possible and to, to make sure that the population understands the, the, the different dimensions of the issue. On that note, you know, communicating uncertainty, I think that has been a big challenge of this pandemic as, you know, as we're in getting data in real time and changing guidelines based on that. 
And that's also seems like that's been an opportunity for people a to discredit um, people, you know, experts, and also, of course, for misinformation to thrive. So I'm curious to hear from from either of you in terms of what you've seen from your data around how do you communicate uncertainty? And how do you say, look, this is the data we have right now. And yes, this could change. Um, you know, now, you know, we have new guidelines, masking guidelines in the US that um, are different. And I mean, there was a time about, a, you know, not about a year ago when, when, when we were advised not to wear masks. And if anything, wearing masks was, was considered to be selfish because you were taking masks from frontline workers. And I was actually talking to somebody the other day about how drastically that changed, right? Um, there was a point where we were looking at people wearing masks and saying, how dare they have a mask? That, that mask should be with a frontline worker to now, how dare they not wear a mask, right? Um, and then now this next evolution as well, I mean, you know, do we need to be wearing double masks? And, and for people that understand the scientific process, I think they, they can follow that logic, but I don't think that's necessarily, we shouldn't take for granted that everybody does or, or will. I mean, the, the only thing I'd, I'd say from- yeah, like, Absolutely, um, I think- uh, Sorry, Helene, please go ahead. We've we've got a we've got our signals have to travel so far between San Francisco and Cairo and back to Dublin. So it's amazing we can have this conversation. But please go ahead. I'll add a, a final thought. No, I, I just wanted to say that it's um, it's something that we we struggle with for sure. But at the end of the day, we um, we need to be the only thing is just to to explain that there are um, the the thought process and not just give people decisions. And, and that's something that when you uh, roll out a vaccine or roll out a specific uh, public health measure, the, there is a benefit risk analysis for everything. There is a cost benefit analysis for, for everything um, to make sure that, that this is the case. I, I've been really impressed. I, my my wife, wife actually works in public health. So she, she is an epidemiologist and I've really, you know, from speaking with him about all of his work, like there's a long game here of trust. And while, you know, a, a debunk kind of dunking might, might feel good. There's a lot, there's a long game of trust and a lot of people who are skeptical out there. And there's a lot more vaccination programs to come in the world. And the WHO has, is going to be back to have to deal with Ebola after this and malaria. All right. Maybe that isn't a vaccination thing, but you know, there's so many other programs that we need long-term trust for. Um, one thing like we we started monitoring Reddit recently, and I'm really impressed with the transparency and quality of conversation that can happen in groups, including, uh, you know, doctors talking about side effects of the vaccine and talking about it openly and acknowledging there were side effects, but this is still the right thing. And I feel safer now and it's better than getting the disease. And, um, you know, being able to have that 360 degree kind of conversation, but it's, it's very hard. I don't know if the pipes for communication are well optimized for, for right now. I think trust is such an important piece to this. And Halim, I'm curious to hear from you, you know, where did you all start um, from a trust perspective at the start of this pandemic? And how have you seen that shift um, over the last 12 months? I mean, um, generally uh, WHO's in the region, uh, at least, um, we are according to number of CAP surveys, um, knowledge, uh, knowledge and perception surveys, um, we, we are by definitely the, the highest in terms of trusted source of information on public health issues um, on the continent. And, um, and, and the, the thing is, uh, it, it didn't really help to have certain heads of state kind of attacking um, WHO and kind of scapegoating um, the organization. Um, 
as much as possible, we are trying to, to, to kind of address these concerns on, on an advocacy level with those heads of states, with those members of parliament, et cetera, et cetera, mm-hmm. and those makers. Um, but um, I think there, there is a lot of trust in, in, uh, in WHO, and it's something that's seen as um, an organization that is seen as um, African as well, because in, in terms of who is leading the organization, Dr. Achidisi Mumwati, our regional director, and uh, the, the, all of the different um, prof- experts who are in, in the field. You know, I, I wonder if, if we could kind of zoom out for just a moment, because I'm curious, um, uh, there's something else that I noticed actually when I was going through, um, you know, some of the WHO's um, publications recently. And, you know, I, I noticed that, you know, two years ago, the Kenyan government sort of piloted sort of a universal healthcare program, I think in four of its 47 counties. And I'm curious sort of if that was, if you all sort of had your first brush with a lot of misinformation during that campaign, I know in the U.S., um, any any effort towards universal healthcare becomes breeding grounds for misinformation. I mean, we 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 saw this with the rollout of, of um, ACA and death panels, and you know, this was a misinformation campaign before we were commonly using that word misinformation. So I'm curious if you all sort of saw that in 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 Kenya as you all you know it, you know as the government you know was piloting this program. This would definitely not be a question for me, I'm afraid. I know, right. Well, yeah, you know, I mean, I, I was just wondering if, if, if there were other, you know, if, if other countries sort of face the same resistance to, to sort of universal healthcare as, as, as we do, at least in, in the US. I think it's, a, it's a, an important point, but I, I think for the moment, the different misinformation, um, sorry, my, my door is ringing, um, <laughs> pieces of misinformation uh, that we have and that we're dealing with are related to COVID-19 yeah. uh, and, and the vaccines at the moment. So that's, um, that's at the moment, these are the top things um, that we're dealing with. Definitely, we would like to expand the scope um, and that whole idea of the Africa Infodemic Response Alliance. Um, it, she is an alliance to kind of uh, address misinformation around different public health issues and not just around emergencies. Definitely, infodemics happen with, around public health crises but misinformation in general um, uh, around public health issues and, and is something that has been around for right. since forever. So, yeah. uh, but, uh, but at the moment, I, I honestly don't, don't have an answer uh, specifically about that example, but um, for the mere reason that we're focused around COVID-19 and right. other yeah, no, I absolutely. I mean, I, I, I was just when I was when I was reading that, I just my thought was, you know, how anything related to public health, how that becomes sort of this magnet for misinformation. And it made it, I went right back to death panels in 2009. And, um, and then, you know, of course, the MMR vaccine in the US has just been this magnet for um, anti, you know, vaccination campaigns. So, you know, it just Yeah, I mean, I think there obviously, I mean, people, people's health is, you know, their most prized valuable asset right so um it makes sense that yeah Mm -hmm. Uh, sorry to interrupt rt but there is there is actually when i zoom out there is a phenomenon that you're that you're diagnosing there which is that when groups tend to be susceptible to misinformation that um kind of confirms their beliefs or if their leader says those guys over there are lying then people will fall in behind and start to believe any story that confirms that belief so like when we've been looking at the spread of misinformation it's almost always 
associated with a group. It doesn't spread randomly through a population. It spreads through groups of people who are predisposed to believing it. And the U.S. is, you know, is severely polarized currently. And healthcare became one of those things. And it's very strange how some things, even scientific questions, once they enter the um, the magic, crazy. <laughs> roundabout of, of, of US politics can, can very quickly become binary uh, and and then uh, you know misinformation can come in as long as it confirms my worldview it must be right and I think public health is, is one I think more in the US than in countries in Europe I'm aware of that it, that it's become and universal the idea of universal healthcare has become this you know lightning rod in a way that's difficult to understand for, for most Europeans yeah Yes, I, I mean, we are absolutely, and it's difficult for, you know, even in the U.S. for the two sides to even really try to come together because one's, you know, seems like they're, they're coming, they're, there's different worldviews in which they're engaging um, with the conversation. Um, you know, that, that, so, you know, since we're speaking globally, one of the things I wanted to get, Helene, I wanted to get your perspective on is, you know, the, the, the variants, right? And, and not only um, is this another area where sort of misinformation can thrive, but also there's, there's issues around how we name them and sort of what some kind of xenophobia that can be kind of embedded with that, that of course could lend itself to, to misinformation. Um, I'm curious to sort of you know, hear kind of how you all are approaching talking about the variants and, and if there's a public education campaign around you know, using, whether it's using the technical names or, or emphasizing that this is where this variant was first identified but it does not necessarily mean it is a UK variant or a South African variant. It just means that's where the, the, it was first identified. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, it's, it's quite important to highlight that um, it, it is against international health regulations um, and to, to kind of name um, any virus um, or any variant by the location it was first identified. And we say identified because it's different from um, we say identify not emerge because we would know that it, it had been first identified in that location, but we wouldn't know where exactly it first emerged. Um, and uh, there's always this, again, talking about our uncertainty, definitely talking about the technical terms. That's the most important thing. Um, and that's what we're trying to do in, in, our, in all our, of our public communications saying, that, for example, um, um, we say the 501 uh, V2 uh, or the 501 variant first identified from South Africa, not the South African variant or not the first emergent in South Africa. That, and just leading by example and kind of guiding journalists that we train and, and that we, we brief um, on that, all over our language on social media, etc. cetera. Um, I think it, it is actually quite an interesting idea to kind of explain um, and to do a communications, especially about that. Um, there was, um, we, we haven't done something like this, but it, it's kind of one of those things when, if you remember the coronavirus was first called the Wuhan virus, that's something has barely anybody mentions now. I mean, unless somebody assinuates on, on, a, on this specific topic or this specific thing, but um, throughout the, the, the period of the pandemic, this is something that has, we moved on and we're positive that this is going to happen as well with the, the 501 uh, variant that first I was first identified in the UK and in uh, South Africa. 
So, yeah, so one, one I, I know we have to wrap up, but I wanted to maybe maybe this is ending on a, on a good note. But you know, you know, we talked about how social media has sort of accelerated and intensified the spread of misinformation, but it also seems like it's been this also this opportunity to to communicate nuance that may be difficult to do so. You know, just simply through the mainstream media channels, things like you know how to properly name the variants and what the differences are between being identified somewhere first versus emerging somewhere. Um, and do you feel like social media has actually been a tool to be able to communicate some of these nuances in this pandemic that maybe without those platforms, um, it would be more difficult? Like, I think when look at what's been um, getting the most engagement again, like, first of all, the direct channels have been there, like the WHO and UNICEF have by far the most engaged posts on Facebook. And in fact, after that, Chicago Tribune story I mentioned the second most engagement story about the whole vaccine trial is getting COVID-19 vaccines to West and Central Africa on unicef.org so the direct channels are there which is brilliant you know uh, in a way that wasn't possible before um, there were these demand aggregating social networks and the other thing is there's an opportunity to tell hero stories from the other side there can be a one-person scare story but then you've got you know, the story, an all-female team delivers COVID-19 vaccines in harshest of conditions in rural Alaska. So you find the heroes and, and those stories from the other side, and those can be, can be important um, counterpoints, and they can personalize and create the stories that are optimized to get a different kind of message out on social media. Mm -hmm. uh, one last thought. Um, the fact that we're able to quantify the reach of this is, is on its own is something that is quite important to acknowledge. Um, from the, the power of understanding the power of these uh, channels um, is quite important, but also imagine amplifying this and trying to, to, to quantify the, uh, if we work in a consortium or in, in an alliance format, like what we're trying to hope and, and do with, with the African Infodemic Response Alliance, um, we're trying to make sure that instead of reaching through just the WHO account, 10 million people, we want to reach 50, 500 million people and to be able through amplifying and making sure that the message is resonating um, and is going um, from one place to the other. Um, through definitely trusted sources and people are having this um, interaction and engagement with these messages. That's, that's, a, that's a good place to stop. I feel like you know, many of these threads of this conversation could, um, could be its, its, own, its, its own discussion. Um, so maybe we'll have, to, we'll have to revisit this at some point. But for now, thank you, Halim, and thank you, Paul, for your time today. Um, and of course, you know, we'll be back um, with another episode of Combining Social and Media Strategy soon. Thanks, Arti. You have been listening to the Provoke podcast, brought to you by Provoke Media and produced by the international broadcast specialists, marketeers. Support for this podcast comes from Notified, the integrated, intelligent and easy to use PR software. Get a free demo today at notified.com.